Looks like. Try a new one. Oh, look at that. You got the special one. That is awesome. So, uh, how are you? The, uh, I, I cannot believe that all you guys would show up here tonight to listen to me because I am two decisions from drywalling. Uh, <laughs> I feel like when I look at a group like this, it's like, tell us something wise. And, and, and I think people think I'm smarter than I am because uh, a host is already smarter than a fifth grader for six years. And, and I tell everybody if they didn't give me the card with the answers on it, that would have been the shortest show in the history of television. I'm not like Alex Trebek. I, I don't know any of that crap. Uh, we had a lady on one night, she, she, it was like a second grade grammar question. It was something about an antonym, and she goes, oh, I remember there were homonyms and synonyms and antonyms. She goes, I can't remember the difference in them. Can you use it in a sentence? <laughs> My antonym came over for Christmas Eve. <laughs> It is, kind of, it is kind of cool that it's guys. I, I have all girls, uh, all daughters. I, I will tell you, and I talk about this sometimes on stage, I, I truly believe from living with all girls, women are smarter than men. And, it, and every night when I say that, women start applauding. And I'm like, y'all, it ain't that big a deal. Uh, <laughs> what I'm saying is you're smarter than a creature that every time it takes off its underwear, it tries to pick it up with its toes, flip them in the air, and catch it with its hand. <laughs> you're smarter than that. But, uh, you know, I, I was wondering, I'd give you a little background on me. Uh, my dad... Uh, left. He, he left when I was about eight or nine years old and uh, he ended up being married six times and had about a thousand girlfriends in between. So uh, he was a player back before that word existed. But uh, so I was thinking about tonight and thinking, all right, if I was 25 or 30 years old, what would I want somebody telling me that, that, that I should know? Uh, <clears throat> All right, here's what I would have wanted to know. I, I call them the facts of life. It's like stuff you can't Google. You just learn from life. Like fact of life. If you are trying to get to the bathroom in an emergency situation, it is not a wise idea to unbutton your pants in transit in the effort to save a couple of seconds. Because the muscles that guard the floodgates will interpret the unbuttoning as the signal to abandon their post. And the two seconds you save on the button are nullified by the hour and a half you spend mopping and doing laundry. Wish somebody had told me that. Fact of life. You can have a wife with long, beautiful hair. Or you can be on time. <laughs> Fact of life, if your wife hints she might be in the mood, your kids will sense it and won't go to bed for three years. <laughs> Fact of life, the more kids you have, the worse your parenting becomes. People that only have one child are making homemade baby food out of organic vegetables they're growing in their own backyard. Yeah, by the time that fourth kid rolls around, you're smoking a cigarette while you watch your toddler pull a year-old milk dud out from under the stove and eat it. <laughs> Pick the cat hair 
off of it before you put it in your mouth, dummy. Fact of life, the Tyrannosaurus Rex was the meanest of all the dinosaurs because his arms were too short to reach his wiener. <laughs> That's a medically proven fact. That will make you angry. A lot of people. Fact of life, flying on an airplane makes you gassy. Nobody ever talks about this. Nobody acknowledges this. No, we just take our little roll-around suitcase and walk to baggage claim, popping them off like a trail horse. <laughs> See, when I wrote that, I didn't know if I was the only one that did that or not. And every night it's like, oh, there's other people farting on the way to baggage claim. So. Back to life, women always have more questions than men have answers to. Great example of this, about eight or nine months ago, I got a text one day, the text said, please pray for Tom, he was in a bad wreck. So I go through the house, I find my wife, I said, hey, I said, just got a text that said, please pray for Tom, he was in a bad wreck. My wife said, was he driving? I said, I don't know, I just got a text that said, please pray for Tom, he was in a bad wreck. She said, were Carol and the kids in the car with him? I said, I don't know, I just got a text that said, please pray for Tom, he was in a bad wreck. She said, were the people in the other car hurt too? I said, I don't know. I just got a text that please break your knock in a bad wreck. She said, did they even have insurance? I said, I don't know. I just got a text that please break your knock in a bad wreck. She said, what hospital did they take them to? I said, I don't know. I just got a text that please break your knock in a bad wreck. She said, you don't know anything. What do you know? I said, no, you need to break for Tom. I just got a text that he's in a bad wreck. Ain't holding anything back. That's all I got. But I am, uh, I am honored to be here with you tonight. And I, and I know, I mean, some of you guys here are involved in a church. Some of you guys don't go to church. Some, some people have been burned by a church. Some people gave up on church. Some people don't believe in any of that. And all of that's cool. Uh, if you got burned by a church, which, which I did uh, very young in life, all I can tell you this is you didn't get burned by God. You got burned by people. That, that screw it up. Christians are the worst representatives for what we believe more than anybody else on the planet. It's like when I was doing the blue collar tour and they got Larry the Cable Guy to be the spokesperson for Nutrisystem. <laughs> True story. So, so, and they were going to pay him like this pile of money to lose 50 pounds. And he knew he didn't have the willpower to do it. <laughs> but he wanted the money. So he hired, he hired this trainer to go on the road with us, and the trainer was supposed to make sure that he ate right and that he exercised every day. And Larry would come in my dressing room and go, hey, dude, I heard there's pizza in the green room. Can you go talk to my trainer for about 15 minutes and distract him? And I'm like, you're paying the guy to make sure you eat right, and now you want me to distract him so you can go eat pizza. But, but Christians are, 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 are terrible at that. And I struggle with it. Man, I, I love the Lord. I struggle so much with it. Uh, I came to faith when I was seven years old. In fact, I wanted to walk down the front of church, and my mom wouldn't let me. She, I remember my mom holding my shirt. She goes, you're too little, and you don't know what you're doing. And so I made him call the preacher, and the preacher came over to the house and talked to me, and he went, he, he knows what he's doing. Let him go do it. But... I grew up in a very conservative Southern Baptist church, and, I, and, and real early 
in life, I started struggling because it was don't don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, don't dance, don't laugh. It was all about behavior. And I wasn't wired that way. I was wired like that. And I'm like, all right, God, I got a problem because I love you. I can't do this. I cannot do this. That's not the way I'm wired. And it took me a long time in life for it to sink in that the guy goes, wait a minute, I made you like this. This is boring to me. When everybody looks and acts the same way, I'm infinitely creative. So I, every person that I made is a masterpiece. I don't want you to look and act alike. And I'm like, oh crap, is that free? That is really free. And if you don't have faith, I, I, I tell you, I, I do a, uh, I teach a, a, a Bible study down at the Atlanta Mission for Homeless Guys every Tuesday morning. Been doing it for 10 years. Uh, like my favorite thing in the world, stumbled into it, didn't know what I was getting into, and it was just so free. But, but every year when we start that thing, I always begin with the same Bible story, and if you're go to church every week you might be bored and just bear with me on this but this is for the people that don't go every week but but right before they killed him Jesus one of the last parables or stories that he told uh, the disciples was a story it's in Luke 15 I think it's the greatest piece of literature in the world it's about that long but it's the story of the prodigal son some most of you probably heard it but his father had two sons the youngest son goes to him and wants his inheritance which in that eastern culture meant I wish you were dead you're not dying fast enough for me. Give me my money. I wish you were dead. Father gives him the money. He goes out and probably like all of us, he's, he's raising hell. He's got him girlfriends. He's hooked up. He's getting high, getting drunk. Blows all the money. Now he's a long way from home. He's got no money left. He ends up getting a job where he's feeding pigs. And he's, and he's so hungry, he wishes he could be eating what the pigs are eating. He's like, all right, I'll swallow my pride. And I'll go back because I know the guys that work for my dad eat better than I do. I'll swallow my pride and go back and see if I can work for my dad. So I said, he turns around and starts going home. And in the story, I think this is the coolest part. He said, while he was still a long way away, his father saw him and went running to him. Well, if you see somebody that's a long way away, you don't do that accidentally. You're actively searching for him. You're looking on the horizon for him. And his father runs to him, and he, and he gives him the, the robe, the, he gives him the family ring, he gives him the sandals, puts the sandals on his feet, which signifies you're not a servant, you're, you're a member of the family. And says, you know, kill the fatted calf, my son that was, was dead is, is now back, he's alive. And, and the older brother who stayed and did everything the father wanted him to do gets mad at this point. He's like, hell, they're throwing him a party. And I've been here every day doing everything he wanted me to do. Nobody ever threw me a party. So he gets pissed off about that. And you know who, who was the most upset that the prodigal son came back home? Anybody know? The fatty calf. That's exactly right. He wasn't happy about it. He's like, oh, crap, he's coming back. So... And the father says to the one, the, to the older son, he goes, I don't know what you're driving about. He says, everything I've got is yours. It always has been. Everything I have is yours. But the, and, and the point of the story is, and I think this is why Jesus was telling this to these guys, was you can't be bad enough. You can't screw up enough to make me love you any less. And you can't be good enough. You can't behave in such a way that would make me love you anymore. I love you with all that I am. So the story is called The Prodigal Son, but it's really about the father. It's about the love of the father. But I think 
for guys your age, I mean, and, and, and even for somebody like my age, we've all been both of those sons. We've screwed up so bad we thought, ah, there's no way God can love me for the bad stuff that I've done. And we've tried to behave in such a way and do all the right things and dress the right way and talk the right way and act the right way thinking maybe, maybe God will love me more. And yeah, I think he just laughs at us. He goes, I can't love you more. If you have kids here, you know what I'm talking about. You know, everybody's got that kid that screws up and everybody's got that kid that does everything right. And you don't love one more than them. You just love them. They're your kids. And so if you're, if you're sick in faith, that's all we ever wanted because every one of us in this room is just a little boy. I'm still that little boy growing up at the end of the runway in Hateful. I'm 59 years old and in my mind I can go back and be nine years old that fast. Still that little boy. And that's all we wanted was a daddy that was going to listen to us, a daddy that was going to love us on our good days and our bad days. And so what I did and 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 and, and, and for my earthly father, I know why he, he, he acted the way he did. Because when he was five years old, his dad, it's like the old joke, his dad went out for a pack of cigarettes and never came back. They found him 20 years later in another state, had another family. I mean, just abandoned him. So I'm like, well, hell, no wonder my dad was the way he was. But, but I freed my dad up from being that dad that had to give me all the things that I wanted, and, and I will tell you this: if you're if you're a husband out here and you're thinking about leaving, or think, no matter what you tell your kids, when a parent leaves you, no matter what that parent says in your mind, because this was me, you think I wasn't worth staying for. I felt that for so many years, and even though I'm a funny guy, I love the fact God let me be a funny guy. Underneath, I mean, that far under the surface, there was this anger or this insecurity that, man, I, I wasn't worth sticking around for. So if you're thinking about leaving, man, think, think that over. Because as, as a kid that lived through it, it, it hurts. And, it, and, it, and it's so much about what your value is. And I, and I made myself notes because I usually don't. Uh... So. Here's the thing with faith, and, and I think going back to what I said about Christians being such bad marketers of this, I think a lot of guys that, that don't know what the Bible's all about, you think that it's, that it's a book about rules, and it's not. And in fact, that was kind of what made Jesus so unique. You know, the only people that ever got sideways with Jesus were the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And they were always trying to trip him up because they were all about laws, man. They had 660-something of them, all of their laws. And they said to him one day, okay, out of all the law, which one is the most important? And he goes, first one is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind. Second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else hangs from that. And you're like, man, are you kidding me? Out of all the laws, that's what it is? Just love God and love other people? That's kind of freeing, isn't it? And you have a dad that's going to love you when you behave right and when you behave wrong if you just love him and seek him. You know, it talks about God says David was a man after his own heart. I mean, go read the story of David. David screwed up more than Ron White. I mean, okay, not more than Ron, but a lot. 
I mean, David did some horrible stuff. David's watching a girl take a bath, decides he wants her, and has her husband killed so he can be with this woman. And God goes, that's a man after my own heart. But here's what David did. He, he screwed up a ton, but every time he got back up, he got back up walking towards God. And so I think that's what God wants from us. And so instead of like a book of rules, if you think about the Ten Commandments, I mean, and, and, the, and the reason God wrote them was to prove we can't do this on our own, but it's, but it's wisdom. It's, it, it, it's like, don't covet what your neighbor has. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Well, the reason he's saying this is because if you start looking at your neighbor's wife and then you go have an affair with her, you're going to bust your marriage up. And you're going to break that trust with your kids, and that ain't good for you. That ain't the way to live. Don't steal because you're going to end up being arrested. You're going to be in jail. Your family's going to have to take care of themselves. I mean, it's, it's wisdom. It's wisdom. So, and he knew we couldn't follow all the rules, which was why he had to give us a Savior. And that's where, where Jesus comes into the story. Is God going, hey, I know you can't do this. No matter how much you want to try to do it, and, and, and man, that's the cry of my heart. I want to try to do it. Then I'll be driving through my neighborhood and some hottie comes jogging the other way and I'm looking in the side view mirror going, crap, I don't want to be like that. But I am. And he goes, I know you are. I made you. And, and I still love you. But you, but you do need a Savior. And, so, and, and, and that's what the whole Jesus thing is about. It, it's... Because as guys, we all want to be significant. Man, that's the thing that drives us. We want to be significant with our buddies. We want to be significant in our little circles, significant to our wives and to our kids. That's what we want. We're guys. we we, we got to have that pat on the back all the time. And in Jesus, God said, hey, you're not just worth something to me. You're worth everything to me. I'm going to let them nail my son to a cross to pay for all the bad thoughts you have and all the crappy things you've done. I'm going to pay for you right here with this because I am about justice. That's who I am. And so when I think about the day that I got to stand before God one day and they start rolling down the story of the hottie driving past my rear view mirror, it's like, did you look at her in the side view mirror? Yes, I did. My defense attorney is, stands up with a hole in his hand and go, I already paid for that. Every charge they read against me, I already paid for that. And you talk about freed. See, that's where Christianity starts smelling like perfume. When it's not based upon my performance, it's a based upon a dad that loves me so much that he's already paid for me that way. And as guys, I was doing a, an interview about two years ago, and the lady said, all right, you do stand-up comedy, you write books, you host game shows, which one are you? And I thought about it for a minute, and I went, well, those are all things that I do, and I love what I do. I would never want to get a real job. I love being a comedian. I, lo I, I, I love being creative and writing and things like that. But that's what I do. Who I am is I'm a child of God, and I'm a husband, and I'm a dad, and I'm a brother, and I'm a son, and I'm a person within this community. That's who I am. So what I do is probably going to change a lot in my lifetime. But who I am stays the same. 
You know, and I love the, the name of this thing, Purpose on Tap, because as a comedian, when I sit down and write jokes, I just think, what do we have in common? What, what do we have in common? Well, as guys, I mean, I think that's what we have in common is every one of us like, why am I here? What, what is the reason that I'm here? Now, the Bible tells you that you're here is to glorify God. And, 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 and when I was young, I was like, what does that mean? Just all day long, just praising God. It's, it's not. You glorify God with what you do with this life. And you don't have but one. And I'm telling you, it goes fast. Any of these older guys will tell you it goes fast. A minute ago I was your age. A minute ago. I can, in my mind, I can still smell what shoulder pads smell like. You know that locker room stink, that sweat stink? I can smell it. A minute ago I was playing high school football. And I'm 59 years old. I'm like, how the heck did that happen? But when you go back to where we're at now, you're like, why am I here? What is my purpose? I'm going to tell you this. You, you don't get a practice lap. You don't get to go around the track a couple of times and figure out what it's about and go, okay, this time I'm going to do it right. You got one lap. And so you got to make it count. And it's like I used to tell my kids growing up, don't, don't, make, the, don't make the big mistakes. And for guys, the big mistakes are spending more time on your job than you do with your, with your family, having affairs, you know. It, it's, big mistakes don't usually happen. You don't usually make a 90 degree turn right off the road. You make little turns. You like the way somebody smells or the way somebody looks and you start flirting with them in the office and then you agree to go have lunch together just the two. That's how that happens. When we were doing the blue collar tour, they used to laugh at me because at the, at the end of the night, we get through the show and we go back to the hotel. Well, they always, you know, you got Ron with you. They're going to the bar. <laughs> Come on, Fox, just one beer. And, and, and I got no problem with beer. I think this is very cool that they do this. But here's what I know about myself. I know what I came from. I know I like booze. I can't help it. I think they're really pretty. <laughs> but I knew what I came from and I knew if I went in there and I had one beer and we're laughing and cutting up and one beer turned into two beers and two beers turned into five beers and then somebody with boobs sat down next to me <laughs> I knew what I was capable of doing so it wasn't that I was better than them I knew what I was capable of doing. And I thought, I knew what it felt like as a kid to have a dad that cheated on my mom and ended up leaving early. And I thought, I don't want to do that to my kids. So what I'm going to do is try to be wise and I'm not going to put myself in that situation. I'm going to go back to my room, I'll order room service and I'll call my wife. Am I goody goody? No, I'm just trying to be wise. I always say wisdom is knowledge plus scars. You know, you learn a lot of this stuff the hard way. So be, be wise and, and, and have a purpose. Like I was, I was trying to think, if I could tell you anything, and it's the hardest lesson in life to learn for a guy, let go. As guys, we want to be in control. 
And the truth of the matter is you're not in control of anything. You're not in control of your next breath. You're not in control of the way other people think or feel or act. You're not in control. And the sooner that that sinks into you, then life starts, starts being free. It's like dropping a, a, a hundred pound bag of sand off your shoulder. You know, when I was running through that pissed off period, if somebody would cut me off in traffic, man, I'd, I'd be that far off their bumper and I'm giving them the, the you know, the salute and <laughs> screaming and yelling. And, and I don't know what happened, but at some point in my life, they cut in. I'm like, whatever. Good. You get there 15 seconds before I do. But it was freeing. And I thought, man, the, the, the benefit of this is for me. I'd let somebody cut me off in traffic, jack up my whole morning. It's like, no, I'm going to let go. And, and, and when I was young, I used, to, I used to be frustrated by the mystery of God. It's like, okay, if I'm not in control and he's in control, that, that frustrates me. I, I, I want to know the answer to everything. But knowing the answer to everything, think about if you're driving and you're out in the desert and that road is just stretched out 100 miles in front of you and you can see everything for 100 miles and it's just flat. Isn't that boring? Isn't that boring? And God's every morning, and, and, and here's one of the coolest gifts God gives us is days. Because He's not bound by time. He doesn't need time. But we are. And so when we screw it up, every 24 hours we get a new shot at it. I think that is just like one of the coolest gifts. It's like, boy, I really jacked it up yesterday, but today I got another shot at it. And I can get it right. And so I just embrace the mystery of whatever today's got going on. And it's instead of being a, a, a long, flat, straight road, there's hills and there's curves and all. And it's, and it's almost like him whispering, it's going, this next part's going to be cool. You're going to love this next part. What are we doing? I don't know. Just hold on. You'll see. It's freeing, man. And that frees you up to do what we were created to do, to glorify God, to love on other people. So I don't have to have the answer to everything. I don't have to know how this is going to end up. I'm like, he's like, hey, if I love you enough to let them spit in my son's face and nail him on the cross for you, don't you think that I love you enough that I'm going to follow you all the way down this road? And I trust him with that. Yeah, but what about my neck? I got this bad vertebrae. It's like, shh. People always talk about hearing God talk to them. You know what God says to me 95% of the time? Shh. Shh, I got it. I got it. So as guys, part of that purpose is, don't just be here. Be valuable. Be valuable. Be that dad. And everybody in here, every guy in here has some person, and you can think of them, and it might have been your granddad, or it might have been your uncle, or it might have been somebody that lived in your neighborhood, but you know a man that was a difference maker. You know a guy, may not have been rich, but most of the time they're not. You know, I was fortunate enough, I grew up in Hateville, down by the airport, where the first dwarf house was. And my whole life, Truett Cathy, the guy that founded Chick-fil-A, I knew Mr. Kathy my whole life when we were little kids. Hey, well, it's got the wrong side of the tracks. Every time Mr. Kathy would see you, he'd reach in his pocket and give you a ticket to get a free Chick-fil-A. And it was like gold. You're like, oh, a free Chick-fil-A. 
I hosted his 90th birthday party and he pulled me over to the side. He goes, I appreciate you doing this. He reached in his pocket. And, well, Mr. Caddy, I can buy one now. It's okay. It's good. But this was in the days when there was one Chick-fil-A and my mother used to tell me, she said, people have no idea what that family does. Now this is when they only had one store. She said, you'd be shocked to know how many people Mr. and Mrs. Kathy had put through college, kids that couldn't afford to go to college. And I'm like, really? From that one little store? Well, you know Chick-fil-A now. I mean, they've given away hundreds of millions of dollars. Just, just crazy. But that stuck with me as a little kid, and, and, and man, the way I grew up, I didn't think I'd ever be able to put my own kids through college. But when I had extra money, I followed his lead, and I put kids through college that couldn't go to college because of this example of this one. Man, so be valuable. Be valuable in your family. Be that kind of dad that other kids go, man, I wish I, wish I had your dad. And I can tell you, as having a dad that was gone, their argument is, well, they want quality time. So to my dad, quality time was to come into town and take us to Six Flags. It's like the redneck, you know, <laughs> magic kingdom. <laughs> it really was. But kids don't want quality time. See, I would have sacrificed going to, to Six Flags just to have a dad that was there every night. Kids don't want quality time. Kids, kids want quantity. They want that consistency. Be that dad. Be that husband. I didn't know from my dad that it was possible to love a woman longer than two weeks. I've been married for 33 years this year. All those years on the road. I had eight years in a row, did 500 shows a year. Never being home. I know you're going, there's 365 days a year, but that was like a lot of Fridays and Saturdays, two or three different places. Never cheated on my wife. And part of the blessing of it was I got to see the damage that happens when somebody did that. So, you know, that's how I learned it. But be valuable. Be valuable in your community. And that's, and that's all Jesus was telling the Pharisees. And when they go, what about the law? He goes, love God and love on other people. Love on people in your community. That's what I do at the mission. I don't have all the answers. I, I just care about these guys. You know, I, I never, I was always doing stuff with kids with cancer. And if, if I saw somebody homeless, I'd give them five bucks to go away, leave my car. See how I'm doing on time. So the first... A guy invited me to come down and have lunch at the mission, it's in the middle of downtown Atlanta. First person that I met that lived in the mission, 21-year-old white kid named Jason. And, and you know what my first thought was? I'm like, you lazy bum, go get a job. You're 21 years old, you jackass. What the hell are you doing sponging off of other people down here? That was my thought. We're sitting there at the lunch table. My buddy that invited me down there, he said, Jason, tell him your story. And Jason said, well, he said, it was me and my dad and mom and my brother. He said, when I was 11 years old, my mom killed herself. He said, in the next year, my brother killed himself. Then it was just me and my dad. In my second year of college, my dad killed himself. He said, I just got tired of hurting. So I started getting drunk, and then I started getting high. Flunked out of college, ended up with a crack habit on the street. And as I'm sitting there with him, I went, 
crap, I would have started getting high too. Oh, crap, I could have been Jason. I just didn't have these circumstances. And so all of a sudden people that were throwaways, when, when they have a name and a story, they're not a throwaway anymore. And what I learned through the years at the mission is almost every single person on the street, something bad happened to them. Something bad happened to them in life and they couldn't deal with the pain, so they started getting drunk or they started getting high. And when you get drunk and you get high, you can't pay your rent. So you start stealing from your family because you don't have any money and your family wants nothing to do with you. That's how you end up on the street. And so what I've learned through the years down there, man, if you can just love on them, if you can ever go back and address that hurt and to say, hey, this thing that you needed, this hurt that you've got, this way that you wanted to be loved, you, you have it. You just don't know you have it because you have it in the, within the dad of that Luke 15 story. You already have it. It's like having a billion dollars in the bank, never writing a check on it. You got it. And if, and if that can ever sink in, people get restored. People get restored. Let me see anything else. Like the dad in the story, I would encourage you to rain grace on people. Just Because I think that's what God does with me. As, as I just imagine that grace, that's like sitting under a waterfall. And it's not even cold. It's warm. And that's what he rains on me. He just cleans me off with that grace. For all my good intentions, I screw it up so much. And he just rains. And we'll, we'll do that with other people. If he's supposed to be an example of how we live, to bring grace on me. <coughs> Forgive people. Let it go. Let it go. Be an encourager. Doesn't cost you a dime. Be that guy that every time you walk in the room or everybody you meet, you're saying something encouraging to them. That's free, but, but Mr. Kathy used to say when I was a kid, he said, you know how to tell when somebody needs encouragement? Like, no, sir, he goes, when they're breathing. <laughs> we all need encouragement, but, but, but how, it's almost like being Santa Claus, if you could just walk around dishing that out to people, telling people, good job, or you look nice today, or man, I appreciate you doing that. I try to do it. I read a thing one time called the shadow people. It's like the, 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 the checkout person or the people that you just kind of walk by without even noticing. I try to just be an encourager to them. So I think that's most of what, what I got. But, but I wanted to do it with enough time because I know I got a weird job. I got a weird, uh, a weird life. But to open it up to questions and, and I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'll tell you whatever. In the back, yes, sir. I did not have a father growing up in parents' style You know, it's uh, the question, if you couldn't hear, how did not having a father influence my parenting style? You know, when my career really started taking off, and, and it kind of, I mean, it went beyond anything that I ever thought, but I would, I would lease a private plane. I would fly out of PDK, but I would fly home every night. So say on Friday night, if I had a show in Kansas City, I'd fly out there and I'd do the show, do all the meet and greet, sign all the stuff before the show. And as soon as I'd walk off stage, I'd go out the back door and I'd get on that plane and I'd fly home. Land at 2, 2.30 in the morning and I'd get up and I'd either take my kids to school if it was a school day or I'd go to their soccer game or basketball or whatever the season was because of, of, of what happened to me, I always wanted my kids to know that they were the priority. They were worth everything to me. 
And then that afternoon, I'd go to their soccer game or take them to school or whatever. And then I'd go back at 4 o'clock, and I'd get on the plane again, and I'd fly to Minneapolis and do a show there and fly back home. And I, and I did that for about 15 years. But, you know, you, you either, when you come from something, I think you either end up like it or you end up 180 to it. And so for me, I mean, it, was, it, it taught me that the thing that I needed to do for my kids was the exact opposite of what my dad did for me. So, so I, I'll get to you. Yes, he beat you by like, I mean, like that. It was so close. I'm curious. So it sounds, you know, frankly, it, you've always kind of got to be on, especially with the role, and, and you're always on the show. And, and I feel like a lot of guys here also always have to kind of be yeah. on. They think they have to be on. What are ways, have you ever, first off, kind of fallen to, to fall into the mold of the comedian? And what are ways that you have you kind of stay true to yourself? You know, it's a good question about being on. I mean, because I think as guys, we create, it's, it's very hard for us to be authentic because we create this work guy and this hangout guy. I mean, for me, one of the things I learned about myself, it's like in the mid-90s, I had a sitcom and we filmed between Seinfeld and Roseanne. And at the time, Roseanne, they were, they were either number one and number two. Sometimes it was Seinfeld, sometimes it was Roseanne. But at the time, Roseanne was making a million dollars an episode, which was a million dollars every five days. And the world will tell you, the world lies to you about everything. The world will tell you, hey, fame and money are the things that are going to make you happy. Well, here was a woman that had the number one TV show and was making a million dollars every five days, and she was absolutely miserable in the parking lots, throwing things at people, screaming at people, getting mad and going home. And so for me, I was like, well, the world lied to me. The world lied, and I'm so glad I got to see this. And I thought, you know what, I'm not gonna live there. I didn't, I, I didn't like doing a sitcom, but so when they, in, NBC invited us not to return for the fall schedule. Uh, <laughs> It was kind of freeing to me because I knew where I could be more authentic and I didn't have to be that pretend guy. So I moved my family back here. I was like, I like being a comic because I can say what I want to say in the way I want to say it, not have to read somebody else's words. But I think it's real important. And, and I would tell you guys this, one of the coolest things that happened to me, and I never, I used to poo-poo it and I thought it was a bad idea because it's real cool in a big group like this. But I got involved when I moved back to Atlanta in 1997 in a small group. And it was just, I, I, it, it's life-changing, guys. Find a group, 10 guys you like. Ten guys, and I've been in the same small group. We meet on Thursday morning in a barbecue, back of a barbecue joint, and we have breakfast. But we've been meeting there for 20 years. So we've raised each other's kids. We've buried each other's parents. We've gone to each other's kids' weddings. We've done life together. But the cool thing is, in that way to be authentic is, you know, somebody might have prepared a, a lesson on a Bible verse and then a guy walks in and he's like, man, my, my son's driving me crazy. It's like, all right, let's close the lesson. Let's talk about this. You're not less of a man because your son's driving you crazy. My, my daughter drives me crazy or my son drives me crazy. So, you know, it's finding those places where you can just be real and you don't have to fake it. And, and, and it's... You know, I think that I did, a couple of weeks ago when I was teaching at the mission, it, it talks about several times in the Bible where Jesus talks about wanting to be our friend. 
So you think about the people that are really your friends. You don't have to pretend when you're really with your friends. You can be with your friends and you can just hang out and you don't have to accomplish anything. You don't have to act like nothing has to get done. They just like you for the way they are. They, they know your warts. They know your bad habits. And, they, and so you think, wait a minute. So the creator of the universe just wants to be my friend? Loves me the way I am, warts and all? Find a small group. Find 10 guys. Find one day a week. Meet for an hour and a half. And just do life together. Because as guys, we, 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 we try, we isolate. And we think, i got to fix everything. Guess what? There's a lot of times I had no idea how to fix it. I didn't know how to fix it. I didn't know how to fix dealing with, you know, having a, a father-in-law that, that was sick and had no money. And I'm like out here busting my hump trying to feed my family and now I've got to take care of somebody else's. That's, that's what a small group is, is, is don't do life by yourself. We weren't intended to do life by ourselves. I was reading a study the other day. They were saying people that smoke and drink but have a group of friends live longer than people that don't smoke, don't drink, and, and, and run 10 miles a day that are isolated. We, we need it, man. We, we need other people around us. Yes, sir. You're too close. You know, you're like right there. <laughs> And you would never sit there in a comedy club. That's like the vulnerable spot. So, so where were you in life when you were 27? And what do you know now that you wish you knew then? Huh. When I was 27, I had just, uh, well, when I was 20, I got married. I was like an idiot. I shouldn't have <laughs> You know what, it, 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 the, the story, I was, I was working at IBM and, and one of the guys that I worked next to was dating this girl that was really good looking. And, 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 but he would tell me stories about how she chased him around the parking lot with a butcher knife and all. And, and they broke up and then I was like, dude, do you care if I go out with her? <laughs> That's a guy for you, right? And he's like, you remember when I told you about the knife? And I'm like, yeah, but she's hot. I, she's, I married her. Uh, and a year later, I was divorced when I was 20 years old. And I thought, I ain't getting married again. And I thought, oh, hell, I'm going to be my dad all over again. And I was working for IBM. They transferred me to Sarasota, Florida. And I worked down there for about four years. And I'd just come back. And I was the funny guy at work. I was the guy that was always doing impersonations of the boss in the break room. And then somebody go, dude, the boss is right there, you know. And a bunch of guys I worked with entered me in a contest at the Punchline when it used to be out there on uh, Roswell Road on Hildebrand. And, and it wasn't like an amateur night. It was for working comedians. And I'm like, I've never been on stage. So I went and watched one week and thought, okay, that's how you do it. And so I went home and wrote material about my family. Went back the next week. I won the contest. I had no idea what I was doing. I won the contest. And this girl came up to me that was an actress that was, had just done a TV thing with one of the other comedians. And they were there rooting for him. And she came up to tell me how much she enjoyed what I did. And I turned around and I spilled my water right down the front of her. That was my wife. So I met my job and my wife same night. Uh, that, was, that was pretty cool. Uh, so 
I, she was the only person, I was always creative. I went to Georgia Tech, I, I shouldn't have, I just had no money. Uh, and, and I had to go to the closest school to home, but I wasn't, in, I didn't have that mind of an engineer. I was a storyteller, I wrote and things, I should have gone, you know, and done that. And, and, and so I was frustrated, I had a good job, but I, it wasn't, you know, if, if God created all of us, that wasn't the thing he created me to do. And so my wife was the only person telling me, you got all this stuff bottled up in you. If you don't do something creative, you're going to lose your mind. So I quit my job at IBM, um, which was crazy. Nobody does that. You know, I, I still remember sitting in my mom's kitchen and my mom looking at me and my mom said, are you on the dope? <laughs> Not dope, the dope, whatever the dope was. And I'm like, no, ma'am, I just, I want to be a comic. I think I can do it. And, and she's like, we can get you hell. <laughs> Five years later, I was on Johnny Carson saying, mom is going, you know, you wasted all those years at IBM. <laughs> but I went back from, uh, so you're asking when I was 27 years old, I found the uh, little pocket calendar because I used to write every date down of what I got paid for it. So. At 27, I did 406 shows and I made $8,300. And, and we somehow lived on that for the year, $8,300. So she married me for the money, as obvious. Uh, and we were happy as clowns. We had no money, but you know, and I didn't ever think that I would make it. I just knew I liked doing this. And the fact, you know, most comics only get to do it for a few years and then. Most people get into stand-up because it's a way to get into TV or movies, and then when they do TV or movies, they don't do stand-up anymore. I just always loved stand-up. My goal was to be on Johnny Carson. That's all I wanted to do. And I remember the first time I was on Johnny, coming home, laying in the bed, going, hell, I have no plan. That was it. You know? <laughs> that was a good catch. Did you see that? <laughs> yes, sir. Okay, well, see if you can pull it off as cheap as we did. Um, when I won the contest at the punchline, the prize for it was two, two tickets to New York, airline tickets, to perform at Catch a Rising Star. So we go up there, and so we decide to get married while we're in New York. And she had been married for less than a year when she was 20, just like me, and we, we were like, and we ain't doing the wedding thing. So we went down to City Hall, got a marriage license, and we were just going to have the Justice of the Peace marry us, and we're standing in line for the Justice of the Peace, and the girl in front of us, her water broke right there on the floor, and I was like, ah. And so I'm like, I can't do this. Way before cell phones, so we go down on the street to the phone booth, and I'm looking for Justice of the Peace in the Yellow Pages, and I couldn't find it. So I start going through churches, and I call this church, and the guy answers, and I said, yeah, how much to marry somebody? He said, 300 bucks. I said, dude, we don't have 300 bucks. I said, why is it so much? He said, well, it's 100 for me and it's 200 for the chapel. I said, we don't need the chapel. We'll do it in the hall. And, and, and he started laughing. And he, and he said, you know what? I'm across from the, the garden at Central Park. He said, if y'all take a cab up here, I'll walk across the street and marry you. So we got up there. And then I realized we didn't have a witness because you got to have a witness to do. And, and there was this guy that was sweeping in the park. And I went over and I said, I'll give you 20 bucks if you'll come be the witness for us getting married. And so for 100 bucks, we got married. And 
We have two wedding photos. They're both Polaroids, and it's it's me, the minister, my wife, and Andre with with his arm around my wife and a broom in the other hand. So that that is, if you can do it for under 120 bucks, good luck to you. So. And, and, and we used to laugh because I, I, I thought that minister was going, they're not going to last a week. This is not going to last a week. And so for 20-something years, he passed away about a decade ago. My, my wife would write him a letter every Christmas. We're still married. we got kids. And, you know. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Funniest comedian you've met? Funniest comedian I've ever met? Ron Wine. Now, Ron is... People want us to do the blue collar tour again. We can't do it because Ron's so dirty when he's by himself. Hey, he'll he'll tell you that. I mean, I'm all the time. I'm like Ron. I said, come on, let's do it again. I can't write 30 minutes of clean material. I said, you can. You've done it before. Okay, I'm too lazy to write 30 minutes of. Clean. But Ron White, it's it, to to this day the, the funniest. And that, and I've known a lot of funny people, but. It's like that story, I don't know how many people saw the Blue Collar Comedy Tour, of him getting thrown out of the bar in New York City. We're literally like sitting in a Denny's one night, and he's like, did I ever tell you all about the time I got thrown out of a bar in New York City? And he's just telling a story about his life, and we're beating the table going, you've got to tell this on stage. So, yeah, he's, he's, he's one of the funniest. Chris Rock's really funny. Uh, Seinfeld, Seinfeld was always weird. Seinfeld would, I would sit down and like I told you, I, this is the way I write comedy, is I just assume if I think it, or my wife says it, or my family does it, that other people are thinking or saying or doing the same thing. That's kind of how I write. In fact, one of the, the facts of life thing that I was doing up front, one of the craziest jokes in there is, is I said, fact of life, out of all of the cereals, Captain Crunch is the most time intensive. Here's what I'm talking about. You eat it too soon after you pour the milk on, and you will rip the roof of your mouth to shreds. You wait too long after you pour the milk on, and the captain will put a film on your teeth a wire brush can't get rid of. I don't even know why that's funny, but everybody in here has waited too long on the Captain Crunch and went, ah, oh, that's nasty. You know, you and that's all comedy is to me. It's like I've had that thought, so maybe somebody else has. Yes, sir. So with your knowledge of Scripture and all that you've experienced in 59 years of life, hmm. is Jesus funny? Yeah, I think, I think God, you know, it says God created us in His image. And so I think God's got a great sense of humor. I think as Christians, we think, we get so uptight that, that we get scared to, to laugh at things. But you think about it. Are you a parent? You know, when your kids are laughing, as a dad, doesn't that just fill your heart? It's, I love it when my kids just sit there and laugh. It, it, it just makes me happy. So, yeah, I think God's got a great sense of humor. I think Jesus, I think Jesus would look at us and go, y'all take this way too seriously. <laughs> just, you know, trust in me. And, and it's like trusting in him. It's like betting on a ball game that you saw yesterday. You know, if you had to bet on the on the SEC championship today, you'd be pretty confident about it. Go dog! How about them dogs, baby? I paid for an Auburn scholarship, by the way. So my my youngest one went to Auburn. But that's wiggle wiggle, or damn eagle, right? 
but that's but that's what faith is to me is I already know where I'm going. You know, this is the struggle. It's the struggles down here every day. But I'll, I, I know who wins the game. I win. I win in the end, so I can go through the struggle. So that's the, that's the beauty of, of, of faith, man. And I don't know how people live without that, because if you don't have faith, this is all pointless. It's, it's just pointless. Why be kind to people? Why love on people? It doesn't matter. Somebody over here. Yeah. What's been the best part about going over to the mission? You know what? The best part is is it's like for Christianity, they're they're just real. They're authentic. Because I think like when we're in church on Sunday, it's like you were talking about finding that real faith. We pretend. We put on our good clothes and we pretend like we got it all going on. And I got my I got my relationship handled. I got my job handled. I got it all figured out. And at the mission, if somebody will look at you and go, hey, I stole my grandmother's life savings to buy crack. You're like, well, guess what? The cross covers that too. They're real with you. So it's, it's the BS is out of the way. They're not pretending anymore. And that's what we really want. You know, that's what, that's what you want out of your faith. You want it to be real. I, I hate people that act like they got it all going on and they don't mess up and they don't have bad thoughts. Sure you do. But I got a God that loves me even though I have all of that. Yes, sir. Green shirt. Has uh, your faith conflicted with your career? Has my faith conflicted with you? Yeah, I mean, it's not real popular in L.A. to be the Christian guy. You know. <laughs> but, you know, the weird part is you would think that people that wouldn't like me because of it. I don't stand on a, you know, if I'm working on a TV show or whatever, I don't preach to people. It, it, I just like try to be kind to people and nice to people. And, and, and so, you know, I don't know, three or four times during the course of doing fifth grade or a lighting guy or a sound guy or somebody would come over and go, you're different. Why, why, why do you handle things different than everybody else? And I'm like, well, if you really want to know, I'll sit, we'll have lunch. I'll tell you, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, to me, so much of, of show business, it's not real. It, I mean, it's, it, 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 even stand-up comedy is not real. If, if I do it right, it looks like, hey, I just thought this up. Is this funny? But I've spent hours and days and weeks working on this and honing it down to the right word. Jay Leno told me in 1984 when I, when I first went on stage, he goes, your goal should be to write one new minute a week. One new minute a week for a comic. And I thought, are you crazy? I can write 30 minutes a week. But he was right. Even in those years when I was doing 500 shows, on my best years I could write a new hour of material. Something that was going to make people laugh every time you said it. And so when I do my job right, it's no different than David Copperfield making you think that he made the car disappear. I'm making you think, hey, I just thought of this. But it's not real. None of it is, it, it is real. And so that's why I live here. That's why I always just, just wanted to have a regular life. That's why I'm here. Yeah. So what is your take on being a servant leader? How do you feel that that changes or you know, gives you a different perspective on life? Yeah, well, you know, being the, and Jesus talked a lot about that. You know, at the Last Supper, he was the one 
Now, he was the one that got down on his knees and washed everybody's feet. You imagine how nasty feet were where everybody had sandals and walked in the dust. But, but again, it's kind of like the Ten Commandments. I think the advantage of service, it's for our benefit. When you think about the people you admire the most in your life, I guarantee you not one of them is a self-centered person. When you think about the people you admire the most, whoever that is in your mind, I bet you they're an other-centered person. So, you know, all Jesus did was lead by example on that. And so when I, you know, my thought, when I went down there to lead at the mission, I thought, oh, Jeff, aren't you cool and aren't you good and you're going to go give your time to help the less fortunate. I was the one. I was the one that got the most out of it. Not them, me. So again, you know, that's that little secret. Everything the world tells you, if you flip it upside down, because, you know, it's like the Mercedes-Benz, the best are nothing. Really? Or nothing? What if I got a Corolla? I got to get to work, dude, you know. It's, but that's what the world tells you, you know, the best are nothing. But, 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 but Jesus whispers, no, it's kind of the other way around. You don't have to be the best. The first shall be last. Go, go serve and you're going to find out how rich and full that... And Jesus talked about that, about living life to the full. And I always wonder, what does that mean, to the full? And that was it. It's like, man, get all of it. Get all of it. Learn what it feels like to love on people and learn what it's like to have people love you back. You know, one of the things, and we talk about this a lot at the mission, when Jesus went to talk to people, he, he would always say, repent. Well, my whole life, you know what I thought repent was? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know what repent actually means? Change the way you think. Change the way you think. It ain't all about you. Let it go. If you're living like it's all about you, you're going to have one miserable lap around the track. I'm going to tell you that. Let's yes, sir. Just one more, Jeff. Yeah, okay. Uh, as you've got highs and lows, would you mind sharing kind of the lower moments of you know, your journey across the years? Get one of the lower moments. Um, yeah, you know, I'm lucky as a comic because I think the guy I am on stage is, is real close to the guy that I am off stage. You know, it's not like Pee Wee Herman having to put on the makeup and do that. <laughs> and, you know, because my dad left early, it's like I have a brother that's like almost six years younger than me and I have a younger sister. I, so like at the age of 10, I kind of became like a dad. I mean, he's my brother, but I'm also like his dad and I had to take care of my mom. So from a very young age, I was a caretaker. I was a caretaker and I always did my business and it's show business everybody likes the show part of it but but like when you're on the road doing comedy clubs they put you up in a like a hotel or a comedy condo and and so most of the guys that i worked with were getting drunk or high every night and chasing waitresses and that's what they did and there was a lot of funny people that went by the wayside but i would go back and i would write and i would you know i did I was like okay i got to do the bit if i'm going to get good at this i got to do the business um so I always had a good work ethic, and, 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 and in that, I always, even when I was having success, I was taking care of people. I was taking care of my in-laws. I was taking care of my mom. I was taking care of my special needs uncle. And, and about three years ago, I had two um, discs blow out in my neck, and, and it's like I lost all the feeling in my, in my left arm. I was in horrible pain. I ended up having neck fusion. I spent six months in a recliner 
couldn't, couldn't, couldn't sleep in a bed, lost 20 something pounds. And, and so I got really depressed because I thought, is this going to be the rest of my life? You know, that's the, the guy that's always going and always. And, and I went to talk to a Christian counselor about it. I'm like, dude, I'm depressed. And he's, you know, he said, well, tell me your story. And I got to tell my story. And he said, well, here's the thing. He said, you've, this is your identity. Your whole life, your identity has been the guy that is dependable, the guy that's going to fly home and take his kids to school, the guy that's going to take care of his mom. And, and, and you're a caretaker. You, he said, you want, you, your whole identity was taking care of everybody and now you can't take care of yourself. And now you're not one bit dependable. Because my wife would say at noon, hey, can we go to lunch with so, I mean, to dinner with so and so? And I said, sure. And by four o'clock that afternoon, my arm, my, you know, I'm in tons of pain and I'm like, I can't leave the house, I can't go. So I was totally independable. And so it, it really, for me, in that low, it, I, would, I don't want to go through that again because I don't know if anybody's been through like serious pain. It sucks, it'll make you crazy. But spiritually, it was like one of the coolest, because it was almost like God going, look, you've created, again, this identity, this, this outer image, this, that that's who you think you are, the caretaker and the dependable guy, but you're not. So it's okay to be the caretaker, and it's okay not to be the caretaker. It's okay to be dependable. It's okay because I don't love you any less. I just love you. I just love you. I just love you. So you don't have to be identified by that. Just be identified as being my kid. So spiritually, it was, I mean, physically it was a suck time. Spiritually, it was an awesome time. Because it was kind of like redefining who I was. I talked too long, didn't I? I apologize. In my Uh, so a few weeks ago, we were talking to Jeff on the phone, having a conference call, um, and we were we knew about his passion for the Atlanta mission, and so um, we we thought we had to give him something. We knew you're going down there tomorrow morning, right? Yeah. 5 a.m. Chick Fil A, the whole crew. Ten years. I ago. wait on Chick Fil A to open because I buy 50 chicken biscuits every Tuesday morning, and I'm like the little poor kid with his cooler outside, and wait on him to unlock the door. <laughs> So we were asking, we were saying, all right, can we give, can Purpose on Tap give you, you know, Target gift cards? What, what can we do for you, for, for these men? And uh, he goes, this is perspective, right? He goes, those guys need socks and towels. <clears throat> Which, uh, so we went to the Walmart in Chambly and talked to the manager, and he gave us, uh, he let us buy um, 550 pairs of reinforced uh, dry fit socks that are made to be worn for weeks at a time and 200 towels at Walmart's, Walmart's cost so that we could buy more and because we, we've always wanted to make a big check I mean they're not so our, our photographer Gwenny and Calder we, uh, we, made a, we made a check for you to take down there take down there So, uh, anyway, we, uh, we, 
appreciate your words, man. And, and living life in community, like you said, and leaning on other guys is, is how what, what we're trying to do here. And you you spoke right to us, and thank you very much. You're welcome, brother. Thanks for that. Hey guys, let's give Jeff a let's give a standing ovation. Oh, no. Thank you for being here.